0: Aria Code is produced in partnership with The Metropolitan Opera, New York's premier opera company. Learn more and explore the Mets' full season lineup at metopera.org. The Metropolitan Opera. All the stories on one stage. Listener Supported
1: WNYC Studios Listener Supported WNYC Studios. It's just a pure outpouring of love. This burning fuse, this fire that's in him, it's lit again. And his own art reaches a new level.
2: From WQXR and the Metropolitan Opera, this is Aria Code. I'm Rhiannon Giddens. We know people like this who live on the edge, who fall in love with all the wrong people, Every episode dives deep into a single aria so we can see what's below the surface.
3: Darkness,
2: mystery, exoticism, pleasure parties. Today, it's Odieu de Calivresse: God with What Intoxication, from the Tales of Hoffman by Jacques Offenbach.
4: If you were to make a list of the most cringeworthy things that have been done for love, I can guarantee you that I've had at least 15 of them.
2: All right, so here's something about me. I was a pretty introspective kid. I read a lot, like walking down the hallways of my middle school with my nose in a book, a lot. And I was really into sci-fi and fantasy. I was obsessed with Robin McKinley, Andrea Norton, Tamara Pierce, so many authors. So I'm super excited to talk about this opera inspired by some old school fantasy writing by E.T.A. Hoffman. That's Ernst Theodor Amadeus Hoffmann, if you're wondering, but you can just call him ETA. Well, Hoffmann was a German master of horror back in the 1800s. His stories were out there. Like, there's one where people steal each other's shadows and one where they sing themselves to death. And there's another one with doppelgangers who were maybe just split personalities, but you're never really sure. Creepy stories like this had a long history in Germany, but not so much in France, so it was kind of like this bomb went off when Hoffman's work made its way across the border. It was all-out Hoffman mania. It's no big surprise that the French composer Jacques Offenbach ended up seeing a play based on Hoffman's stories. That night at the theater became the inspiration for his final work, Les Contes d'Hoffmann, The Tales of Hoffman. Over the course of the opera, the hero Hoffman tells his tales to a group of students over drinks. Lots and lots of drinks. These tales of Hoffman are about three different women he's loved. None of these relationships was actually, you know, consummated. They're mostly just obsessions, and they don't end too well. So the whole opera is really about misplaced and unmet desires. Take his very brief affair with the courtesan, Giulietta. She wants to lure him in so she can steal his soul. Hoffman sings her this passionate aria, O oh Dieu de Calivresse, all about how much he loves her, even though he's just met her. <sighs> Tenors. You'll hear more about all that in just a couple of minutes, but first, let's clarify something right off the bat. Hoffman is both the name of the real life writer and our protagonist, the passionate, lovesick, drunken poet. I've got four people here to help you make heads or tails of Hoffman. First, tenor Matthew Polanzani.
1: Let's rock and roll.
2: He's just finished his 22nd season at the Met.
1: That seems impossible, actually. I don't understand where the time has gone.
2: But he's been performing for a lot longer than that.
1: Yeah, I was in a band even in high school. It was called Empty Pockets, and we were definitely broke.
2: Next, Beth Greenberg. She directed The Tales of Hoffman for City Opera back in 1996. I got it sort of as a last-minute assignment, and it was a big
0: five-act French opera that I had never done before. And how did she feel about that? Energized, nervous, thrilled, everything at once.
2: Up next, Veronica Chambers, a writer and editor for The New York Times who wrote about her obsession with love for the paper's Modern Love column.
4: The Modern Love column really divulges what a disaster I was at dating. Mm, But in a good way. They talk about dating being like those dance dance revolution games where you're trying to follow the steps and you think you're doing well and then it just gets faster and harder and everything else. Those games are terrifying.
2: And finally, Francesca Britton, an associate professor of music at Case Western Reserve University in Ohio. My work centers on 19th and 20th century music. She wrote the book Music and Fantasy in the Age of Berlioz, and she's interested in the work of E.T.A. Hoffman and other fantasy writers.
3: I think that all of us want to believe and have an intuitive sense that there is another world. There is enchantment. There are wondrous sounds and
2: smells and other selves. You are about to enter another dimension. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the tales of Hoffman. (laughs)
0: An opera fantastique. That's what Offenbach called The Tales of Hoffman, a work unlike any he had ever written before. The stories themselves by E.T.A. Hoffman are so rich that you go back to them and you find new things all the
3: time. E.T.A. Hoffman was a really compelling figure, He was working in the early part of the 19th century, and he was sort of one part author, one part critic, one part composer. Painter,
0: poet, conductor. He
3: was also a trained lawyer.
0: Also an opera composer of some success.
3: He was a theater director. Scenery builder, theater manager. He was also a drinker and had a kind of grotesque sense of humor. And he was a central contributor to the German Romantic movement. So we know him now primarily as the author of a collection of fantastic tales. And their defining characteristic is that they hover between the domain of reality and the domain of the unreal.
0: Some of them feel like episodes of The Twilight Zone, where you're going along and everything is sort of normal, and then the rug is just pulled right out from under you. And I think that was what people began to love in the theater or as an outgrowth of romantic literature.
3: Fantastic tales often start, especially in Hoffman's writing, in identifiable places like Venice. So you know where you are, you're in the real world. And they're sometimes quite prosaic. They describe what people are eating or what they're wearing or their jobs. And suddenly, without any warning, supernatural Events or people enter the landscape and disrupt our sense of normalcy.
1: And that's part of the appeal of the opera, really, is the fantastical, the unknown, the twilight zoneness of it all.
3: The tales kind of start in the middle and end sometimes before they really resolve. So from a narrative perspective, it's a very fantastic opera. Hoffman is a narrator of... The tales of woeful love that dominate the tales of Hoffman, but he's also a fictional character within these stories. And it's never quite clear are we encountering Hoffman, the historical, real figure, or are we encountering fictionalized sort of stories in which he plays a role?
1: Hoffman is an artist who has a deep-seated need to be loved and to love.
0: Hoffman is everyone's favorite romantic hero, the poet with his cowboy boots with a beat-up guitar in Washington Square Park. He's our teenage idols, he's our elvises, all those bad boys that we fall in love with.
1: He's a little touched in the head, which is good for any artist. It's good to have just a little edge of craziness there because it means that you've got an access into the fantastical. You need to be able to reach down into depth so you can pull stuff out that people find interesting.
0: He's trying to create art, but then just finds himself falling in love with all of the wrong people who are all eventually destroyed in one way or another. And he, in turn, is destroyed as well.
4: I'm really embarrassed to say how long I had been obsessed with love, like our poor guy in this opera. I mean, I think really since I was a teenager, I was obsessed with books like Sweet Valley High and all of those books about high school and dating. And I also went to college like during the golden age of romantic comedies. I definitely watched them in my dorm, like the When Harry Met Sally's and all that kind of stuff. But there is, I think, a kind of perennial optimism underneath all that romanticism, which I think translates to a lot of different things. So I was obsessed with love. But I was also obsessed with becoming a writer. So I had all this hope about having a book someday. And I remember thinking, I want to go into the New York Public Library and see a book with my name in it. Like, that's as crazy as, I just saw a guy on the subway and I'm totally in love with him. And how am I going to get his number? And how are we going to connect? You know, I just feel that kind of like optimism translated from one thing into another, into another. And some of it was foolish and some of it was ill-placed. But it does give you a certain energy. It gives you something to be excited about.
1: Well, when we meet Hoffman, he's come into the bar with his friend Niklaus, and he's in a black mood, like he needs a Xanax or something. And, uh, boy, that seems to be true of quite a few of these tenors for some reason. I don't know why that could be. Anyway, uh, and so... His friends eventually ask him to tell a story. He's a storyteller, he's a poet, and they depend on him for entertainment. And so what comes out of him is just this little story about a dwarf, Klein Sack. But he, he interrupts himself along the way, and he gets stuck in this reverie thinking about Stella.
0: So this is also a very interesting dimension in terms of the writing because we begin to get into split personalities. We hear about Stella first, who's around the corner performing in Don Giovanni. But he also goes into a reverie about a young girl that he fell in love with. He starts the stories of these three women who embody Stella. Olympia, the doll. Antonia, the sick singer.
3: And Julietta the courtesan. Stella, Olympia, Antonia, and Giulietta. These four sort of idealized women or objects of desire. There's another woman in the opera, it's the muse.
1: She's a kind of a conscience, sort of a person who is there to help keep him on track.
3: And we never really know. Are these different women, are they aspects of the same woman? Are these stories really different, or are they just retellings of the same story? I think it forces us to confront the idea that we're not whole, we're not continuous. We are kind of made up of these different voices, and that we might meet those other people somewhere either in the world or in our minds, and you know, what will happen when we
4: meet those people? I can think about my dating life as these little chapters and some really feel like tragedies. Like when I dated people who were clearly not in love with me, they were either gay or not out. There were moments where someone sort of fell for me and I was so flattered that I was like, this can work because I thought, oh, maybe this is how the story is going to go. And so I'm just going to follow the like, DJ down this road where, you know, all of a sudden I'm out late at night all the time and I'm in these dark places that I would normally never be in. So that optimism that I think is part of the romantic character can sometimes lead you into weird places.
3: Act One, Olympia is based on Hoffman's famous story, The Sandman, which was glossed by everybody from Baudelaire to Freud. It's been the subject of so much psychoanalytic attention, literary critical attention. And it centers on a student who falls in love with a woman, Olympia, only to later discover that she's an automaton.
0: At first, he's a romantic fool falling in love with a mechanical doll while wearing his rose-colored glasses.
3: So this is like a moment of irony, I think, for Offenbach, you know, that you look through rose-colored glasses and you see a woman where, where there's only a machine.
1: Sadly, she gets destroyed right in front of him, which is horrible. And that's the first story. And the second story is uh, about Antonia, who is a singer who he's met.
3: It's based on a story of Hoffman's called Counselor Crespel. And this is also a very creepy and overtly musical tale. And it revolves around a strange violinist called Counselor Crespo. And he has a young daughter, Antonia, who's a wonderful singer. He describes her voice as uh, like the sound of an aeolian harp or like the crystalline timbres of a magical universe. But the problem is that Every time Antonia sings, some of her life drains away. So singing is pathological for her. And finally, she dies.
1: The third story is about Giulietta, the courtesan, who is really just hired to seduce him.
3: It's based on quite a long story called The New Year's Eve Adventure.
0: We meet the character of Giulietta, a courtesan in Venice.
3: Venice has long been a place in European fiction of this time that's bound up with sort of darkness, mystery, exoticism, relaxed morals, gondolas, pleasure parties, you know, this kind of thing.
0: I've only been to Venice once, and I remember I have no idea how I found my hotel at night, because it's such a confused mess of little streets and water and... Nothing felt solid under your feet there. Anything could happen at any moment. Someone could just jump out of the shadows. Venice is a very shadowy place.
3: Hoffman washes up on a gondola to this party that Giulietta is hosting. She's basically a call girl. She has a couple of goonies hanging around her friend
0: Schlemiel, and then... The evil baritone, Hoffman's nemesis, Da Pertuto, a supernatural magician, who's there on the scene. And he basically bribes Giulietta with this big, beautiful diamond, jewels. <laughs> Diamonds are a girl's best friend in this case. And basically, he wants the soul
3: of Hoffman. Dr. Da Pertutto says to Giulietta, Your job is to get Hoffman's reflection and give it to me. In other words, to capture his soul. She agrees. And somehow, though it's not
0: clearly explained, Julieta has the ability to steal a man's shadow. And so she finds the perfect chump in Hoffman. And what she does is promise him a date. She basically promises him sex.
3: At first, he resists her charms, But Julieta sings a seduction piece. And he succumbs.
1: His heart leaps. He falls in love.
3: At which point he sings, Oh Dieu de quelle Ivresse, God with what intoxication, is the translation, and expresses his rapture for Julieta. He's been sucked in
4: by her. And so that's the New Year's Eve adventure. I had a number of New Year's Eve adventures. One New Year's Eve, my then boyfriend said, What are you doing New Year's Eve? I told him that I didn't have plans. He goes, Great. A bunch of us are going to get together. I will text you with the information. He did not text me. I stayed home and I completely cut all my hair off because I was so sad. On a different New Year's Eve, I did arrange to meet someone who I'd been seeing. And this guy, let's just say in a broad sense, he was a diplomat and he was very dashing. And I was really smitten with him. And the party that he invited me to, which was like, you know, all of these foreign dignitary types, he showed up with another girl. And I stumbled into Times Square at a phone booth, called my friend crying and just was devastated. Like, I couldn't believe it. I was like, I guess we're not dating anymore. And I'm Latin. My family's from Panama. And so we're very superstitious about New Year's Eve. You have to have like your nails done and your hair combed and your house clean because the idea is that. However the New Year finds you is how the whole year will go. So these disastrous New Year's Eve things were doubly devastating because it was kind of like the universe was saying, oh, New Year's Eve is ruined, and guess what? The year ahead is going to suck too.
1: So what we get when he starts in the aria, it's just a pure outpouring of love.
4: The very first
0: phrase, "Oh Dieu de Calivirasa, The melody is such that asks the singer to make a very big leap. It is very expressive. And in that, in that very first leap, it tells you so much about the way Hoffman feels about Giulietta.
1: This burning fuse, this fire that's in him, it's lit again. He's just been inspired into a deeper, more poetic, more emotional state, and his own art reaches a new level.
0: But it's all a trick. It's always a destructive love, and he's constantly frustrated. It's never attainable. He's a tragic romantic poet.
4: When you fall in like, which I think a lot of this is, there is so much self-deception. You know, you make things line up in ways that, like with a cold, clear eye, they would never really line up. There's also all the masks that we all wear. Sometimes people are trying to charm you or... Because of all the ways they've been hurt, they present in ways that aren't their true self. So there's the illusion of what we hope for, and there's the illusion of how people present. And there's a lot of room in there to fall and be hurt and just get it all wrong.
3: Hoffman sings to Julietta. You fill my soul like a divine concert. Your voice has entered me with a sweet, brilliant fire. My being is being devoured. He's intoxicated by his own longing, like ideal longing that Hoffman has for Julietta. It's
1: overpowering. I mean, this is incredibly sexy and beautiful stuff.
3: But the longing is not really about her, and it's not really about any of these other women. It's sort of a longing for longing. And what happens is that that longing is projected onto women, these fantasies of wholeness or creative inspiration or spiritual access. Um, And this isn't new, the idea of a female muse, but these women, even though they're idolized as muses, are also always demonized because ultimately... They can't embody these ideals. Women are up on these pedestals, and not only do they fall off, but they're blamed for those failures, right? They turn out just to be automata or to be courtesans, and they have a femme fatale kind of feel around them. And they are emblems of male failure to really access whatever creative wellspring they're looking for, because no one can ultimately satisfy this longing. He's in constant pursuit of the kind
0: of infatuation high. He's completely consumed by it. And I think that's this ecstatic state is where he'd love to live his life all the time. We know people like this who who live on the edge, who fall in love with all the wrong people, who seek experiences through alcohol or other substances, who are looking for ecstatic experiences, things out of the ordinary.
4: Let's just say if you were to make a list of the most cringeworthy things that have been done for love, I can guarantee you that I've had at least 15 of them. (laughs) Oh my God. I did so many things. I got on planes repeatedly because I never saw distance as a barrier. I thought nothing of it, which sounds crazy now, but like I never like hired a skywriter, but let's just say I did skywriting-level declarations of love that were like, what? The other person just had no interest in responding to that whatsoever.
3: He sings, Your glance has poured its fire into mine like radiant stars, and I feel, my beloved, your sweet scented breath pass over my lips and eyes.
1: In each phrase, Offenbach takes it a half step higher. And each one of them, he's reaching a new height in his art, a new height in his poetry. And then he literally yells out, Your breath passes over my lips and my eyes. And for him, it's like a smell of heaven. It's manna, it's love, it's Purity. Oh, it's lust too, God. Don't forget this. I mean, it's the highest level of poetry we've seen from him yet.
0: This is the most expansive, the most erotic of all the music that he sings.
3: And it seduces us. We ourselves are characters in that story of seduction.
0: Offenbach begins the aria in key of B-flat, very ordinary key, the key of the good old stir-spangled banner. But as the vocal line climbs and moves towards the climax, it modulates to the very sexy key of D-flat major.
1: It's hard, the way it climbs at the end up to the top A-flat. It's just difficult to remain in control and not let emotion get the better of you. I'm sure that I, I would speak virtually for every tenor and saying that we're all really glad it's short. Then he brings it all down to piano again, and he starts the aria again. Oh, Dieu de I mean, he just brings it home to her in a way that it can leaves no possibility that she could not understand exactly what she did to him and then you know she throws him over she gives him this magic mirror and it steals his reflection or we can say uh, his soul which leaves him a little bit crazed and we see her at the end of the scene leaving with dappertutto and afans just left in his misery
0: Niklaus, who is also Hoffman's muse, she's the one who literally saves him at the end, who brings him back to his art form.
3: His muse kind of reasserts herself and says to him, now give up all of these foolish diversions and focus your attention on me so that we can really get on with producing some good art.
1: Yeah, he's turning to art and poetry, but it's only because he's been inspired again and he's doomed to chase love. It's an imperative for him. It's an imperative for most human beings. Nearly every one of us needs that feeling of being loved and of loving. And even though he has been inspired to write more deeply and to let stuff pour out of him, I think it only will last until he's met the next one.
4: After like 10 10- plus years of dating really horribly, I gave other parts of my life more value. I was really in love with my work. And I had also started traveling by myself. I was playing tennis and I'd started boxing and I was so much more at home in my body. And my then boyfriend proposed to me six months after our first date. And I was like, are we really getting married? Do you know how badly I've done this? And now we've been married for 18 years. So I do believe that the continued practice of keeping your heart open, even after you've been heartbroken a lot of times, is actually very powerful. You don't always have to be good at dating to fall in love with a quality human being and have them fall in love with you.
2: New York Times writer and editor Veronica Chambers, tenor Matthew Polanzani, music professor Francesca Britton, and stage director Beth Greenberg. decoding. You're listening to Aria Code, produced in partnership with the Metropolitan Opera. Visit the Met and experience an exciting mix
0: of bold new works and timeless classics. Buy tickets, watch videos, and learn more at
3: metopera.org. The Metropolitan Opera, all the stories on one stage.
4: Carnegie Hall has welcomed a dizzying array of performers.
3: To have Andy Kaufman,
0: Frank Zappa, and Birkett Nielsen and Horowitz on the same stage, it becomes this kaleidoscope of our history.
4: I'm Jessica Vosk. Join me for the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk. It's all about our unique cultural history, as witnessed by one of New York's most beloved institutions, Carnegie Hall. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts.
2: O oh Dieu de Calivresse, from The Tales of Hoffman, by Jacques Offenbach. Matthew will be back to sing it for you after the break. Here's Matthew Polanzani singing O oh Dieu de Calivresse, from The Tales of Hoffman, by Jacques Offenbach. i Julietta could have stolen his soul after hearing that aria, I will never know. That was Matthew Polanzani singing "O Dieu de Calivresse, Hoffman's passionate love song from the Tales of Hoffman by Jacques Offenbach. I hope it swept you off your feet. And if it did, tell us. Let us know by posting on social media, tell your friends, you know, and leave a review at Apple Podcasts. It really helps to get the word out about the show. For example, Susie the Bear left us a review that was the most beautiful story about how she struggled to like opera her whole life and how this podcast was the thing that got her over to the other side. And we just want to thank you, Susie, for telling us your story. It means so much to our whole team. Now, speaking of that team, Aria Code is a co-production of WQXR and the Metropolitan Opera, the show is produced and scored by the very fantastical Marin Lazian. Emily Lang is our associate producer. Brendan Francis Newham and Helena Groot of Public Address Media are our editors. And Matt Abramovitz is our executive producer. Sound design and mixing by Matt Boynton and Anya Jeshik. and original music by Hannes Brown. I'm Rhiannon Giddens, and I'll see you next week for the last episode of Season 2
5: do 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 do